you're beginning to slouch, starting to hear creaks and pops in your joints, then All Things Pilates is for you. Instructors and health practitioners join me as we teach you how to move with strength and ease. You'll be educated about the two main approaches to Pilates. Good morning, Petaluma. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Uh, welcome back to our show for this week. Uh, we have two interesting guests this morning uh, during our first segment here today. We'll be speaking with Carol Barless, who is a member of the Petaluma Community Relations Council Coordinating Committee, as well as a community activist and an all-around intelligent, uh, insightful, perceptive person. So it's certainly great to have you here in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, yes, it's great to be here, uh, Rabbi Ted. I appreciate so much having this opportunity to talk with you and to uh, have the community uh, be interested in hearing what we have to say. Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the main goals of my uh, show here is to have our community meet various people who are uh, uh, affecting people's lives and working to affect people's lives in some way to show that our power is locally and we can make a real difference in people's lives based on what we do in our own community. So uh, I'd like to start a little bit, a uh, question of your background, uh, where you grew up, uh, how you got to Petaluma, um, <laughs> education. Go ahead. You can just, this is your chance. Okay. <laughs> well, I grew up in San Diego. Um, my parents moved from Pennsylvania when I was four across the country, and, and um, uh, so I grew up there. And um, um, <coughs> jumping forward quite a number of years, I went to Berkeley for two years for undergraduate work, and then over to um, UCSF for a degree in dental hygiene. That was my first degree, a bachelor's degree. And uh, while I was uh, Actually, while I was at Berkeley, I met my husband, and um, he was a wild young man, crazy chicken farmer from Petaluma, and um, and so um, we ended up falling in love, and I married, and he brought me to Petaluma. I was all of 22 years old, and thinking that I was going to live in the big time, New York or Chicago. <laughs> so here I was in Petaluma on a chicken farm. Wow, wow. You've been here quite a while then. Yeah. Yes, that's amazing. Yeah. You've seen lots of changes and good, bad, and indifferent and, right. and all of that. Right. Right. Yeah, I understand you had a stint on uh, city council back in the 90s? Yes, yeah. Uh, 1992 to 96, I was a member of the Petaluma City Council. And uh, prior to that, actually, uh, I was on the Petaluma Valley Hospital Board of Directors for 12 years, three terms. So uh, I ended up kissing babies through re-elections a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how does somebody choose to run for public office? I often ask people who've done that, what... What was there inside of you that motivated you, and what was that like having to do that and kiss all those babies? <laughs> <laughs> that was the pleasurable part. That was, indeed. <laughs> um, 
Well, in the hospital board, I had just completed a master's degree in health education. And, um, and I, so I became interested in health in, within our community. And at the time, um, I knew a few physicians who were trying, who tried to recruit me to run for the hospital board. They thought, they thought my health background would be good and that, um, that some of my mo- more forward thinking would be helpful. And I had two little bit kids at the time. I think they were two and six or something like that. So um, I was looking for something to do outside the home. Uh, and so I thought I had something to contribute. And so I ran for the hospital board of directors. City council was a little different. Um, there were issues like the um, uh, Rainier overcrossing. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> we're talking. Ted, we're talking 20 years ago. <laughs> I know. I know. Some things never change. Um, so, uh, and Lafferty Ranch uh-huh. and putting a big Walmart at our southernmost gate and things like that. And so... I decided I wanted to have some influence uh, on the direction the city was going. Wow. So Walmart never happened. No. Neither did the Rainier Crossing so <laughs> yeah, far. Right. But maybe. Do you think it's, um, do you think the climate is different now for city council? How do you, do you ever look at city council and what's going on in our in a much enlarged city in the past 20 years and think about the issues relative to where they were when you were doing this? I do, and um, just one little story. Um, <clears throat> the year I was elected uh, was the year of the woman in general, is when uh, Diane Feinstein and Barbara Boxer got elected uh-huh. to the Senate. Uh-huh. And at that time, there were s- uh, seven, seven council members, six of whom were women. And Brian Sobel was the only man. So the, the, the night we were sworn in, Brian came in in a wig and pearls. <laughs> trying to fit in with the rest of, of us. Course, of course. I just think that's a cute story. That is a cute story. But, and we were, the, the more progressive of us were a minority mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, so we didn't get a whole lot done according to what I felt should have happened. Uh-huh. And also, here's an interesting thing, I think. Um, as a woman, I felt, um, uh, even though we were a majority on the council, uh, there was criticism in the press uh, that, uh, you know, specifically I was chosen out um, because I asked a lot of questions before I would make a decision. And I wasn't willing to come to quick decisions on, on various issues. And the press, you know, uh, characterized me as dragging my feet, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I think times have changed now for women in politics in terms of their, uh, ex- not acceptability, but their credibility and, and being taken more seriously. Um, but as you noted, some of the issues we have been dragging on for years. Right, and they will continue to, not that necessarily the Rainier Crossing, but, yeah. but all issues will continue to drag on. And it seems each generation or each decade, well, depending on what frame of time, is, has different takes on things, and that's our world. Right. So you went on from city council and moved on from that and into a whole different area of yeah. study and, yeah. and focus. Yeah, I uh, ended up getting a, a doctorate degree from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Um, it was a, a, an experimental program, um, very student-centered, all adult student-centered, 
And um, my degree formally is called a, a doctorate in transformative learning and change in human systems. And I see, I can just see everybody's eyes glossing over. Basically what that is, uh, is a degree in how we learn as adults and how we learn to think critically about issues about our own lives and things like that. So there's a certain methodology to that that I learned from. And um, it was the beginning point for my own awakening to social issues in a way that I had never thought about them before. And what, what did change? What, how did you start thinking about them? Well, I started, you know, I think like many other people, um, my interest was, you know, my family, my husband, and of course, you know, I, I was charitable. I would give to charities, and I might do some, some volunteering. But I was always at the center of my life, and uh, through the learning process that I went through in obtaining my PhD, uh, I was able to open up my mind in a way that. Um, was amazing. It, it really changed my life. And for example, um, the idea that uh, there can be more than one truth about a particular situation, that there can be multiple realities, that uh, people can think differently about things and the way they think is as valid to them as the way I think is valid to me. And once you reach that conclusion, how do you handle those, given that model and that understanding, once you reach that conclusion that that person, the other person's truth is valid also, how do you then interact? How do you deal with interest? How do you resolve the differences? Well, let me first of all say, sometimes you don't. Okay. Um, um, <clears throat> sometimes what gets resolved are... are Yes, what gets resolved is a mutual respect um, uh, and um, an acknowledgement that the other person has their point of view. However, if you are a decision maker, a leader and a decision maker, and you have to come down on an issue in a particular way or in a particular direction, um, you still have to do that. And there is hope that when... When two different opinions uh, are, are, are uh, spoken about, that there can be some kind of compromise, something gleaned, some, some new information from both sides that can make a third kind of uh, solution. And that really, <clears throat> it's almost like a conflict resolution process, but um, I have found that to work very, very often. But it has to work, it, it can only work when both people want to open their minds to the other perspective. Yes, and we've had uh, many discussions actually in the studio here with people about open communication. Uh, Luz Wire was on to talk about empathetic listening as he does often with us. And all of those methodologies, but it takes two people as a starting point to be open to be able to do that. And of course, when the person who is listening is listening only in preparation for the things that he or she is going to say next, then that kind of discourages the, the possibility uh, of a resolution. Yes. So, as in terms of this model of adult education that you are talking about, uh, how does that affect how things might be taught 
and it's certainly at an academic level. How, how are things, how should they be taught differently than they might be in a university setting where people march into a classroom and the professor gives a lecture on quantum physics or whatever the subject might be, the history of the United States. Everybody walks out and that's it. What, what, what does the model look like in, in actuality? Well, um, <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's a complex model, but I think I can describe a bit of it briefly. Okay. And um, it's based on uh, processes of learning that are not just cognitive. Mm -hmm. So we approach emotional uh, uh, learning, and um, there is also this idea of what's named in the theory is presentational knowing. So, for example, uh, I would uh, I would ask someone who has just read an article about racism, for example, and uh, and maybe it's a it's an article that talks about things that this person hadn't ever observed before or thought about. So rather than to, to intellectualize, I would ask the person to, to maybe be quiet for a minute or two, to feel in their body what's happening, and then maybe I would present them with some crayons or some paints or, or something to, to try to show uh, or to, to um, express what they were feeling about this. And it, this is poo-pooed in, in a lot of academic situations, but it is amazing because then you do talk afterwards. And it is amazing how much more clarity uh, an individual can have and how much more willing they are to speak things that they might not have wanted to speak before. Yeah, that's, that, that's interesting. I'm trying to make a parallel or think about how pedagogy is actually taught in the Jewish tradition mm -hmm. because uh, there is a system of, quote, adult education in Judaism, and it's text-based, of course, uh, looking at traditional texts. But traditional texts were always um, studied uh, at least in pairs. You'd, uh, pedagogy was done by taking a group of words on a page and different people explaining to each other how they're how they understand those words, and trying to figure out, and hopefully between the two people, at least initially, reaching a conclusion that this is what it, those words really mean. Because even the written word, as exact as the written word might be, leave open lots of questions in in the in, in the world. So. Um, this notion of uh, what's called chavruta or studying with somebody else was a way that people could, uh, they would express their, the emotions. It was a cognitive process, but it was also an emotional process because they, could, they were discussing with each other. Um, and it wasn't based on just walking into, I've all, you know, I used to, I knew when I was in college that uh, I would walk into the classroom, I'd take my notes, take the tests, and all that, like all of us did. Uh, but I knew that in the Jewish background that I was coming from, that that wasn't the way to study, that I was going to learn more if I sat down with a classmate and went over the material in the class and discussed with that person. So that seems to fit into this kind of model of, 
uh, interaction for adult education. Right. There is a, it's a form of collaborative learning, uh-huh. <clears throat> which is how it's stated in, in academic circles, collaborative learning. Uh-huh. And the idea of, of say, reading a, an article or a paragraph and giving, I would give my interpretation to you, and then you would give me your interpretation, and then we would, it's very similar to what you were just saying. Right. Absolutely, we absolutely. It. It's, it's interesting, the <clears throat> in my own life, with this presentational knowing, which all, also, by the way, includes movement, uh, mm-hmm. you know, music and movement, um, after I, I'm no longer teaching, uh, I taught at uh, St. Mary's and Dominican and actually Sonoma State as well. But um, I decided not to go back into teaching after three bachelor completion programs were eliminated. But then I was inspired to take up painting and art, which I had done in my 20s and left behind when I had my family. And so I've been drawing and painting for the last, oh, I'd say 15, 18 years. And then I've also taken up acting uh, I've studied acting at the Sixth Street Playhouse in Santa Rosa, and I didn't really, I didn't do this in a way uh, that I said, okay, I'm going to do this now to develop my right brain because my left brain is so developed. But when I started thinking about it a bit later, I was realizing I wanted to learn differently than I had ever learned before, and which was mostly intellectually based, and. Um, I'm finding it really wonderful. And how is acting doing that? What is what happens in that process for you? Uh, in acting or yeah. painting? Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, there's an internal process that happens uh, that uh, awakens me to um, being more present uh, with what's going on. Um, m- many art forms can claim that as a as a process to just being present. You you one is so focused on what you're doing, and painting. I'm not thinking, okay, now I'm going to put red here and blue here, or I'm going to make the line this way or that way. Um, it all comes intuitively, and um, I'm not used to um, uh, working with my intuition, or I hadn't been so used to working with my intuition. I was used to working with my mind. But it would seem to me that acting is an attempt to be somebody else, whereas painting is putting yourself onto the canvas. Ah, interesting observation. <laughs> Actually, the kind, the, the, acting the way I know it is, yes, you are becoming someone else, uh-huh. but in the process of taking on a character, uh, you have to uh, find that character within yourself. For example, the last play I was in, it was a stage okay. reading. I played, um, I played a uh, woman <clears throat> who was a gun manufacturer in a small southern town. Mm-hmm. Her name was Ruby, and she made guns, and she believed in guns, okay? Uh-huh. And, um, <clears throat> and the reason she believed in guns was because her uh, daughter was uh, thrown down the basement stairs by uh, three men who invaded their house. Uh, or, or rather, she was thrown down the stairs, and her daughter was uh, uh, assaulted. And she said, if I'd had a gun in my basement, I could have come up and prevented the whole thing. So she and her daughter started this gun factory. In other words, this is a, a wonderful human being. She, she said, people need guns to keep safe. 
So I had to find that character in me because I am not in favor of guns. Mm-hmm. But I had to find somewhere in me where I could see that as a possibility to defend my daughter, you know, mm-hmm. if I had to do it. So what I'm saying is, is that acting allows uh, me to, to discover more parts of myself that I might have buried down or hidden or didn't want to confront. So you've taken all of these um, your academic pursuits and your uh, internal pursuits and translated it into kinds of activism in the community. What kinds of things are, do you find yourself drawn to? Well, you know, I'm with the group, right. yeah, the Petaluma. And <coughs> I'm also uh, on the board of the Petaluma Arts Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in a very critical situation right now. We need people to become members. We need donors. My little pitch here. Okay. But, but uh, we, uh, and we're doing some wonderful things uh, in, in inviting people to become members of the Art Center. And, uh, you can go on to our web our website, PetalumaArtCenter.org, and find out all the events that are happening and, the, and, and all of the um, things that you get from membership. So that's one thing I'm doing. Um, and, you know, it, I did, there was a hiatus between the time I left the city council and the time I got active again in the community. It was a good 10 years. And it was time for me to, that's when I, you know, started painting and... Um, and acting, it was time for me to, to do something for me and develop myself. And it's just a, you know, a few years ago that I decided I wanted to get back active again. Uh-huh. Well, that's, uh, that's an important uh, piece. You know, uh, uh, we, we have different stages in adult life, and those stages have been documented, and not everybody goes through them sequentially and at the same period of age and stuff like that. But change is dynamic, you know, and the, but there also have been measures of people who are, we might label more conservative in their world views, where those changes don't, don't become quite as radical as this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, could, I could see that in your adult education model, you know, having a, a personality that might be labeled a conservative personality and a personality that is more open to varying truths in the world would be uh, would be a difficult you know combination to put together. But uh, so you've taken this this path. What, you know, when when you sit around our uh, meetings of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, um, anything there that really touches you in terms of uh, issues about bullying in school, the immigration stuff that we've taken on. Uh, we're going to be dealing with affordability and living in Petaluma and stuff. Any of those that spark your, your yeah. passions? <clears throat> well, um, the uh, one of the things that I, I, I uh, did also in my past life is that um, uh, I, I was a um, consultant for on issues of diversity. Mm. And uh, it was actually a collaborative group of people from CIS. And... Um, we went out to varying institutions, usually educational institutions, and and did consulting around racism. We put put on workshops and helped people try to understand that concept of racism and how we are a racially stratified society. And um, so I, I've done some of that in my past. And 
the, the issues of racism and white privilege are very strong for me. I belong to a, a group that we've been meeting for 20 years, once a month, where a group of white folks who have explored our own um, internal racism, embedded racism. We've written uh, conference papers. We've attended conferences. And it, it's an ongoing, it's been an ongoing thing for me to think about white privilege. And of course, today now, it's really come out a lot in terms of the conversation, uh, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, it certainly is out there, and you know, I, I would. Want, I was just thinking when you were describing, uh, and I'm, I was thinking back of all the diversity training when I was director of Jewish Family and Children's Services in East Bay. We did a lot of diversity training, but the audience and the, the presenters were all white, and uh, I, I wonder what that looks like to people coming from the varying backgrounds, whether it be black or cultural differences, looking at white people sitting around trying to figure out how to be nicer to them. I mean, what that, I, mean I, I know I'm being a little cynical in that kind of <laughs> comment about it, yeah. but there's a certain piece to that that, um, that you know, it's, just, it's, it's hard. Well, there's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll quote you something. <clears throat> when I was in my uh, cohort, um, we had some African-American students, too, and we, we, we base a lot of our learning uh, around uh, our, our critical thinking around uh, our differences. And one of the things that was said to me was that um, you go do your own work. We already know what's going on. You go do your work. You figure out what the problem is and, and, then, and then come back to us. So that's one. I mean, there's that's not, yeah, that's one way. It's not the only way. You can bring people of differences together as well. But um, it's really, I feel, it's up to people who are white to come together and become conscious and aware of how we hold racism and the damage it's doing to everybody in our society. And that goes back to that model of multiple truths in the world and differences that uh, in people and that there's not necessarily one, uh, one uh, right way to do things. Yes. So before we finish up, any last-minute comments you would like to make about your life, the community you serve? Um, just that I love Petaluma. I love Petaluma. And uh, I've traveled all over the world frequently, and I'm always wonderful. it's always wonderful to come back because people here, no matter what their persuasion, are warm and genuine and open, and it's just been a pleasure to be part of this community. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for being with us here in the studio today. Thank you for your service to our community in the past and in the present, and uh, we wish you well, and thank you. And you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We'll be back in three minutes for segment two of our show.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. We're here in the studios of KPCALP, Petaluma, California, for our second segment. And uh, I have a, uh, an advertisement to read. So I'm going to share this information with you. Have you tried the KPCA Blend Coffee? Available exclusively at Petaluma Coffee and Tea. Petaluma Community Access and KPCA Radio receive 10% of every pound of KPCA Blend Coffee sold. It's a great way to support local radio and get your coffee fixed. This lighter, medium roast blend contains Indian monsoon, Malabar, New Guinea, Ethiopian Harar, and Guatemalan beans. Petaluma Coffee and Tea, located at 212 2nd Street in Petaluma. Thanks to Nick at Petaluma Coffee and Tea, and thank you for your support. Okay, maybe after the show we should go over and uh, have some coffee together. So I'd like to welcome to our studio for our second segment today, uh, Shelly Bauer, uh, part of our uh, Jewish community here in Petaluma, member of the Israel Jewish Center, very active uh, in uh, different kinds of things in our community, but also comes uh, in her life with a special and uh, sometimes challenging piece of uh, Jewish history that she bears with her. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So welcome to the studio, Shelley. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Is this your first time on radio? Yes, it is. You mean the millions of people are listening shouldn't, they're, you're not too worried about them, are you? No. Okay, good. That's good. We're going to be fine here today. And I'm really honored that you're here. And I think uh, given that the Jewish holidays are coming, given the state of our world these days and concerns happening, um, your family, your spirit that you bring to the community, your education that you brought, which we're going to unfold during the next uh, seg- during this segment of the show, are really important for us. So give us a little bit about your background so we can put it in the context of your family and your experience. Well, my parents uh, immigrated after World War II, after surviving the Holocaust. Um, they came through Ellis Island on January 24th, 1947. Mm-hmm. And because my mother had a brother in San Francisco, he was able to get, sponsor them to come to San Francisco. And um, they uh, settled in San Francisco for a while, and my mother was able to get a job at Mount Zion Hospital because she was a nurse graduating from the Jewish Hospital in Berlin. And at Mount Zion, she had a patient who was Jewish from Petaluma. And this lady said, we know what you all have endured. And we, I think it would be good for you to come to Petaluma and settle and raise a family. So in 1949, after I was born, they rented a chicken ranch and raised chickens for a while and eventually bought a chicken ranch a 10-acre chicken ranch with a big farmhouse in 1950 with the help of the Petaluma Jewish community as well as Hebrew Free Loan, which is a Jewish lending organization. And they raised chickens for quite a while and became very active in B'nai Israel. And um, it was there 
that my parents um, gave me a Jewish education and encouraged me to participate, sometimes against my will, but I did it. Um, while growing up, however, the Holocaust was always the forefront. Uh, my mother would talk a lot about her experiences, my father not so much, and I learned what they had endured. And as a small child, it was so scary for me. Um, it was so scary that I would never tell anybody that I was Jewish. I would never wear a Star of David. I, I would not acknowledge my Judaism because I was always afraid that I would be taken to a concentration camp. And as I grew older, my mother started talking to the high schools, the school children of all ages, actually. And sometimes I would go with her to see how the children would relate to her. And even with her broken English, she was able to make herself understood about her experiences. And the kids loved her. They would hug her and give her lots of respect. So it taught me that um, you have to make this known at some point. So, and that, uh, and you, can you identify a period of time in your life when you started saying, "I am Jewish"? Was there a change? I, did a change happen there? Obviously, it did because you're. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think as a teenager, you know. It was kind of forced down my throat. You know, you have to go to the synagogue. You have to go to services. But it was after I had children of my own that I realized, you know what? I am Jewish, and I want to give them a Jewish education. That's when I became more involved. But it was actually, as I get older, it becomes more and more meaningful for me to hang on to my Judaism. And actually, today, I'm very proud of who I am and my Judaism. And I know that, and I see it all the time, and I'm honored to be part of that connection oh. for you. So, um, yeah, the, so the generation of the Holocaust survivors is passing us. There aren't many left, right. in our, certainly in our community, uh, as time goes on. And you, as second generation, are, have taken up the cudgel and are sharing this story of what happened. And a story does not mean fiction. A story means the truths of what happened uh, to families and to the lives of so many, many people. Uh, what are you doing with that? You're speaking in the schools. And can you talk a little bit about well, that? Well, several years ago, I was approached by uh, a woman who is had started a group called The Story Project, and she encouraged me to get involved. I was a little hesitant because the story was not mine, and I didn't know how I could tell it, or even if I had the courage to do it. And she encouraged me, and I said, okay, I'll try it. And with the help of the uh, computer lab at Casa Grande High School, the kids helped me make a PowerPoint. And I went the first time to the high school at Santa Rosa High School and talked in front of 950 kids. 
if you can do that, you can do anything. And I was so well received, and I thought, you know, I can do this. I was nervous. I still am when I go. But after a while, I tell the story of my parents, how they met, how they grew up. My father was from Poland. My mother was from Germany, West Prussia. And how in 1933, when Hitler came into power, my mother was no longer welcome in her little, in her school, and my grandfather no longer welcome in his town. And they went to Berlin to settle. Uh, however, my grandfather, being a World War I veteran, never believed that Hitler would um, kick the Jews out or persecute. He, he was a proud German. And um, on the night of Kristallnacht, November 9th, 1938, the Gestapo arrested him out of his apartment in the middle of the night, took him to the jail, beat him up, shaved his head, and it was then he realized that the Jews were in a lot of peril. It was also then my mother realized that she needed to have a profession, and she went to nursing school and eventually met my father, and um, they fell in love, and my father was able to encourage her to leave the hospital because he got word that the nurses were being deported to Bergen-Belsen. And so my mother um, encouraged an ambulance driver to take her out with the dead bodies of the hospital. And they lived in hiding for most of the war until the very last part of, no, of 1944, when they were both captured by Jews who were collaborating with Germans and sent, my mother sent to Terezin and my father to Sachsenhausen. And I firmly believe if they had been captured sooner, they would not have survived. So this story project is a culmination of a lot of survivors who were, we have one lady who's 94, who's a, who tells her story, but most of the survivors now were children during the war. And then all of us, second generation, children of survivors, we talk about our parents' story. And every story is, as you can imagine, so different. Um, so it's been a really good education for all of us to collaborate and talk to the children and get their reactions. But we just we don't just talk about the Holocaust. With what's going on in the United States today, with white nationalism and bigotry and uh, you know the uh, um, Hispanics being kept at the borders, we talk about we use this term called the pyramid of hate which is something that we show the children. And it talks about how does genocide start? It starts with uh, prejudice, with discrimination, with violence, with the threatening, until it 
escalates to the point of a genocide. And we try to show the kids and get their feedback of what they think uh, discrimination looks like and how they feel they're being discriminated in the schools and give us their feedback as well as we trying to teach them. And what's the feedback that you've gotten? What is, well, what's the, what, what's that the feedback like? has been, you know, that um, they get picked on, they get bullied. Um, I asked my nephew, if who goes to Petaluma High School, if he ever sees anti-Semitism at the school. He said, oh, yes, you see everything. You see uh, swastikas that they had to clean out of the bathrooms. You see... Um, the Hispanic kids getting pushed around, Muslim kids who are shunned. And it's very sad. In fact, he said to me, you know, I would hate for you to come to talk to at the school. I said, why? And he said, because I wouldn't want anybody to be mean to you. I said, that's precisely why I have to go. Yeah, so just to let you know, we have been working, the Petaluma Community Relations Council at some level has been working with the two high schools in Petaluma uh, to try to deal with some of these issues because mm -hmm. they're very profound. And there's another parent group that has been organized with trainings called TIDE um, that they're attempting to start in the elementary schools to try to deal with bullying issues mm -hmm. and discrimination issues because we are seeing an increase in it and uh, the, the discomfort that people are experiencing is often hidden uh, behind the scenes because people don't want to deal with it because it's very difficult. Yeah. So when you tell, you, when you tell this story of your parents time after time, uh, I can see your eyes as we're talking, and I know the depth of that story doesn't change inside of you. That each time you tell it, it's a new t it's a new story inside, and um, that probably makes a big difference to those who are hearing your story, because uh, they often hear stories from people, and it's just about something else, about something unreal. But in the genuineness of your presentation, they can understand that that it's a real and troubling piece of history and piece of current events. I, in my, in my presentation, I show pi pictures of my grandparents, uh -huh. and I also show pictures, but I bring the Jewish star my mother had to wear during the war, the actual star. When she lived in hiding, she ripped a mezuzah off one of the doorways, and she kept it with her, believing that it would keep her safe. And the kids really, really like seeing that. They like seeing the pictures. They like seeing um, the Ausweis, which was the passport for my mother to leave Germany. Six years ago, I did a Jewish heritage trip, and I went to Poland, and I went to Czechoslovakia. I went through Auschwitz and Birkenau, and then I went to Terezin because I wanted to see the camp where my mother was. And while I was there, there was a little, there was a woman in the office working on a computer. And I asked her if I give you her name and birthday, <clears throat> could you tell me when she was brought there? And upon leaving after the tour, 
she handed me a piece of paper with my mother's name, birth date, when she was brought there and when she was liberated. And I fell apart because I heard the stories my entire life, but until you see it in black and white, it's just a story. And it, it, it was such a profound experience for me to have gone there and see where she was and what she endured and to hear some of the stories that she told us, <clears throat> my brother and I. And to validate uh, the historical pieces of it right. and having that piece of paper. Right. I know many, back in the 90s, I went to, uh, to Auschwitz-Birkenau and with us in the group was a Holocaust survivor and she actually took us to the bunk that she and her sisters mm-hmm. were in during their internment in the camp. And we stood there. It's like, wow, you know, what this is like. What this is like to be here. So that validation is, um, is so profound. It's so profound. And um, this the story project and getting out and letting the... It doesn't just apply to the Jews. It's what happens when a world begins to divide itself against each other, mm-hmm. such as we're seeing, that, that we have to worry about, and we're worried right now. Many years ago, I had a movie called Night and Fog, which you may have seen at some point. It was a actually filmed, taken by the Nazi soldiers of the camps, very, very graphic. And I owned a copy of it, and I went to the public school in a small southern town. I went to the high school where I was living. And I showed it seven, one of the teachers invited me and I spent the whole day, seven periods of his classes, showing the movie. And, and, and I tried to universalize it. And this is back in the 70s. I tried to universalize it so that it wasn't just about Jews. It's about racism. Mm-hmm. It's about discrimination. It's about when one person or group of people feels they're greater than another. And I, you know, I tried to address the African-American, the black students in the class, but they, they couldn't connect to it. They were having a hard time. I suspect it's different these days when they see that. Or when, how has it been for you with the minority groups when they hear your presentation? I will tell you a little story. I was at um, El Molino last year speaking, mm-hmm. and I told the kids how I don't tell any, didn't tell anybody I was Jewish for fear of being taken to a camp. And after my presentation, three kids came up to me and said, you're not the only one who don't tell people you're Jewish. Mm-hmm. We don't. Mm-hmm. And this is today. Right. And it just made me realize that the fear is still there. And my fear at the time, it was so real. And it's still real. And it's sad that we have to arm the synagogue with bulletproof windows and and security systems in all the synagogues and all the JCCs and how we've gotten to this point in time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, so sad. It and churches are now arming themselves right. putting up security measures too, public, all public places. It's, uh, it is sad. Um, this, so... Uh, is, can people contact if they, anybody out there wants to get speakers for the school? Yes, definitely. We have a website and um, we have a brochure and we're going to the different schools to tell about it. 
And um, um, I also want to put in a plug. The story project will be featured at three libraries, uh, Petaluma Library, uh, Rohnert Park Library, and Windsor Library around the time of Kristallnacht. In November. Right? In November. Uh -huh. And we will have panel discussions, and it's open to the community, and we encourage teachers to come. And um, hope we get a good attendance, because we really want to get the word out how important we are. Yeah, and the whole, you know, it's interesting. People have, um, you know, the Holocaust uh, and all of those events are seen now by, certainly by the younger generations, as history, mm -hmm. you know. And history is the past. We have, and many people would say, we have to deal with the present without wanting to look at that past. And a project like this and the ability to communicate clearly to the younger generations the consequences of nationalism, white supremacy, etc. is such an important message uh, in, in this generation and to, in these days as more and more is happening in our country in particular and in the world. So when you... Um, uh, do you, what's happening with the Holocaust curriculum in the school? Do you know what's going on at public schools? I'm not 100% clear. They do, not all teachers, but a lot of the social study and English teachers have their kids read Night mm -hmm. by Eli Wiesel and The Diary of Anne Frank mm -hmm. and The Children of Williston Lane. And they... Uh, some teachers are so amazing. They have their kids really research Holocaust studies and stories. And others, not as much. But I think when we come in and talk with, with our props or our presentations or our pictures, it becomes real for them. And when they can touch the Jewish star, actually touch it or see it, it becomes real for them. It's not just something in a history book. And there's a new diary coming out that's being published next week that was just found or just released right. by the family of Renya Spiegel. I did read that. And it's going to be published. Uh, it's actually coming out next week. And uh, that should be another set of insights uh, into what happened. I remember I was at Casa Grande uh, a number of years ago when uh, Lillian Judd spoke, mm -hmm. and there was probably about 75, 80 people in the library there, and you could hear a pin drop in the room, as, and people were really focused on it. I was really proud to watch this, actually a very diverse group of people mm -hmm. paying attention, because often in schools, especially the larger the group, the, more, the easier it is for people to become anonymous and doodle mm -hmm. and do this and that and not pay attention, but their eyes were riveted uh, to her story, and it's such an important thing to be telling. Mm -hmm. It's such an important thing to be telling. And her son, Dennis Judd, is on our committee. Uh -huh. So, yeah, there, there are lots of those stories. So when you come to this, uh, you know, this time of year on the Jewish calendar of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement, it's a time of self-reflection. It's a time of memory mm -hmm. of family. What's that like for you, and uh, how do you experience that relative to the things you're talking about? And 
Is it a family thing only? Is it uh, is the whole thing open up for you? For me, it's it's a time of uh, sorrow in that I never knew my grandparents. I always longed for grandparents and what would they have been like. And it's a way for me to honor my parents for what they went through and what they gave back. And kind of just a re- rejuvenation <laughs> yeah. uh, of who I am and who I want to be. Um, and for me to be more compassionate and be more kind in, in my way so that I can show others that it's imp- that's important for um, everyone to embrace one another as much as we can. I mean, we're all very different. The world is very, uh, very different place than it was when I was growing up. But um, I try to project that as much as I can and give back. Well, the Interfaith Council of Sonoma County has started this kindness campaign asking our world to sign on to this notion that Kindness is the way that we're going to get through these times and not division and not pain and not suffering and not bullying and not discrimination and not looking askance at each other. So it's really important. It's really an important piece of this. um, So this this subject is a uh, one that will keep coming up because we can't let it go. We can't let it go. We can never forget. We can never forget. And at the same time, I would want to make sure that all of us, particularly as as Jewish people, remember that our tradition is filled with positive things about how we live our lives, how we take care of our world, our responsibilities to each other, and that our memories of the Holocaust are incentives for us to keep learning and living our lives exactly in the way that you're uh, describing. Right. So I want to thank you very much for being with us. Any last comments before I finish up? Uh, no. <laughs> That's okay. You don't have to have any last comments. That's thank great. you, Rabbi Ted, for having me. It's great. And it's an honor for and, me. And it's, it's great to hear your story told again and again and again. It's really an important one for us uh, to all hear. So all of you are listening to uh, Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCALP. I think that this season of the year... Uh, We are hoping for a better new year on the Jewish calendar, uh, a year of life and happiness and peace for the entire world. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCA, LP, Petaluma, California. C-A-L-P, Pataluma, California.